So we're starting off in 2 Samuel, chapter 11, starting at verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone out to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Seek me, Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to the house, to his house. David was told, Uriah, did you not go home? So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Job and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And we'll skip on to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. Now we're going to read from 1 Kings, the next book along, uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 11. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and our Lord David knows nothing about it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go into King David and say to him, My Lord the king, did you not swear to me your servant? Surely Solomon your son shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you have said. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room, where Abishag the Shemanite was attending him. Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What is it you want? the king asked. She said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to me your servant by the Lord your God, Solomon, your son, shall become king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord, you, my lord the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep, and has invited all the king's sons, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon, your servant. My lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord, the king, is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. And skipping on to verse 28. Then King David said, call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry you out. Carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. And then Bathsheba bowed down with her face on the ground, prostrating herself before the king, and said, May my Lord King David live forever. And finally, we will read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, 
Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Well, please do keep your Bibles open um, on those passages, and we'll, we will be looking through them at uh, different points as we continue this series, looking at some of the, the, the women, the wives, who are in Jesus' family line. And uh, Hannah did a great job of reading those passages. It's good to get these broad sweeps of chunks of scripture so we can see what God is doing. Well, this week, it has been a great week for unlikely sporting underdogs who do well in the World Cup football. If there's one thing I love about the World Cup, it's the shock surprises. Um, Saudi Arabia um, beating uh, Argentina 2-1. Amazing, great goals. Japan beating Germany. Is there a whoop there, Kent, for Japan? Come on. Yes, all the way. It's brilliant. There's something very satisfying about watching England's footballing foes getting beaten by teams that people think don't stand a chance. I still carry her from 1986, seeing Maradona punch the ball into the goal. And even though I've met some of the Argentinian players when they were at City, who are lovely people, I still think, oh, isn't it great Saudi Arabia <laughs> got two in? You know, the, the surprise and shock, the wonder of seeing the unlikely ones victorious. And there's surprise and shock of the women listed in Matthew's genealogy, as I said last week. These are unlikely heroes of God's grace. They show us the treasure of his saving love in the darkest of times. Um, the, the pastor, Ted Tripp, writes this, these women prove that in Jesus the barriers between male and female really are torn down. Men and women stand as equals before God. We have different callings and duties, but there is absolute equality of personhood. These women prove Jesus to be a willing descendant of human shame. A willing descendant of human shame. Most genealogies that are written uh, are there to show there is no impurity in the bloodline. Interestingly, Herod the Great, when Jesus was born, he was the one ruling. Herod the Great destroyed and tampered and added names of people to make him look good to his genealogy. He completely edited it. It was a piece of propaganda to make his genealogy look great so that no one, so no one could compare his background with anyone else's. But Jesus is not ashamed to call us his sisters and brothers. He not only came to save sinners, he, he came from sinners. The inclusion of these four women before Mary preaches the gospel of grace to us. It shows us how deep and wide and high and long the love of God truly is. 
Uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, put it like this. It is as though God intended this genealogy to say, Oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. God could have done it a different way. He chose this way to be numbered among his people. God's grace is greater than all our sin. So as we turn to Bathsheba, and if you were paying close attention, you would have noticed that her name wasn't even used in Matthew's genealogy. Did you spot that? Well, what's going on there? Is Matthew just being rude at this point? Is he insulting? No, not at all. Not at all. In using the title Uriah's wife, Matthew was emphasizing the ugliness and the destructive nature of King David's sin. He's calling David out. This is King David. Let's think about this. The hero shepherd. Yeah? The man after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, you read that. The fearless youngest son of Jesse, who defeated Goliath using, Goliath using what? Sunday school, like, 101. A sling and one stone. This is King David, the faithful servant who wouldn't kill psychotic King Saul, who was after him. No, no, I'm not going to harm the king, the Lord's anointed, who's faithful. He lives as an outlaw. He still fights Israel's enemies, and he waits, he waits, he waits to ascend the throne. He's not going to kill or topple this king. David, who worshipped God with such heartfelt, raw emotion and joy. He wrote 73 at least of the 150 psalms we have. He was the one who, in his happiness, danced in his linen underwear as the Ark of the Covenants brought into Jerusalem. He's given it the big sort of dance floor, throwing all the shapes because he's so in love with God. He worships his heart out visibly. His wife goes, what are you doing? You disgrace. He's like, No. I'll become even more undignified for the Lord. This is the David we're looking at. He gave Mephibosheth a home and seat at his table in Jerusalem. Uh, Mephibosheth was Saul's crippled son. And in a culture where you'd kill all the family of the previous king, David goes, no, 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 who can I show favor to? Here is this crippled lame son. He can come. He can live in Jerusalem. He can be saved. He can eat at my table. This is the king who subdued nations around Israel. The Lord God gave victory to David wherever he went. And yet here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read that very same king commits atrocious sins. As the pastor Scott Sauls put it, what we see here is nothing short of the work of a sociopathic narcissist. You see, the most powerful enemy in David wasn't the violent nations out there. It was the one he carried around with him, as we all do, sin. And we'll never get the treasure of this raw story if we stand apart from it and say, I am so glad I'm not like David. We will not understand why God has given us this story. For all of us are ruled by our self-focus, our desires, rather than God's word and will. 
And with that in mind, let's look at the first part here then. An ugly fool, just quite simply, an ugly fool. The alarm bell should have been ringing in verse 1. In spring, at the time when kings go to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. David remained in Jerusalem. He sent his commander. The armies are out there. They've dealt a strategic blow to the Syrian Ammonite uh, coalition who were trying to uh, invade Israel. The army of Israel is waging war. The loyal um, soldiers, the chiefs of army, were out there risking their lives. And where was David? Taking it easy in his home city. The king should be with his men. The king should be in the field. The king should be leading and fighting shoulder to shoulder with his men. He's delegated responsibilities. He's taking it easy. He's bored. What's he doing? Strolling around his rooftop because he's woken up from his sleep. And there's something more than the stars that catches his eye. We could say it's the full moon that catches his attention. But this is a beauty. Someone's got that. Thanks, Dan. Um, <laughs> This, there's something more that catches his eye. This beautiful, naked woman. He saw enough to fuel his lust. Bathsheba has no idea she's being watched. She's innocently here following the ceremonial laws following her period in verse 4b. She's presumably planning to get ready to go to temple at some point. But David's plotting in his head how to get her in his bed. Everything about verses 2 to 5 is very blunt. It's very direct in the action. It's quick. The verbs rush the desire along. It's very hard to get that. Even when it's read out, you have to slow yourself down and go back over and go, what is going on here? the way it's described. But the verbs are rushed. There's no loving kindness. There's no compassion in David. He's driven by lust. He saw. He sent. He got her. He lay with her. This is royal self-indulgence and abusive power on a despicable scale. Bathsheba is the passive victim in all this. We're not told how she felt, what she was going through, what was on in her mind. There's... There's, she's just brought to the palace. She's returned home. She's conceived. She's just the woman in verse 5. And she has this life-changing message, I'm pregnant. It's just two words in the Hebrew, making it the stark reality of, uh, of David's actions here, even more noticeable. I'm pregnant. I'm grateful to John Piper's work on this text because I used to refer to this incident, I think like a lot of people, as David's adultery. And thanks to Piper, I see that is very wrong. It's David's rape of Bathsheba. Everything in this opening five verses, so David throwing his weight around, using his power, using his influence... As he wants. He didn't invite Bathsheba. He didn't woo her. There wasn't this consensual coming together and plotting how they've fallen in love with each other and stuff like this. He took her. And Nathan's rebuke in the parable in chapter 12 reinforces the unjust taking. It's, he talks about killing and eating 
Bathsheba and Uriah in different ways are both like those lambs, that lamb. They're served up as a meal for the king. One to please his sexual lust, the other to protect Israel. The darkness in David's heart is also seen in his betrayal of Bathsheba's father, Eliam, we have his name mentioned, and of her husband, Uriah. Now, these two men are listed later in David's 30 mighty men. Basically, these were two guys who'd fought alongside David and put their lives on the line for him when he was persecuted, when he was hunted by Saul. They were utterly loyal to him. And how does he treat them? As things to be used, as commodities. Uriah's loyalty and integrity is seen starkly, isn't it, in the conversation. David, how's he going to cover this up? You've got to bring the guy back from the front line uh, and have a bit of rest and relaxation, have a meal with the king. You know, but we see his loyalty, Uriah's so clear. It's his integrity. The Lord's Ark is out in the field. The, the men are fighting. I, I'm with them. I, what, I, I'm not getting time off. Uriah is even a better man drunk than David is sober. David's sordid plan to cover up his sin is frustrated by Uriah's loyalty. How ironic. It's frustrated by his faithfulness. So David makes Uriah carry his own death warrant under royal seal. Okay, well, that plan's failed. Here we go. There's the order. Oh, and Uriah, can you give that to the commander of the army, Joab? Can you see how dark this is? This is shocking. David is the living embodiment of what the Apostle Paul, um, sorry, the Apostle James diagnoses in his letter in chapter 1, verse 15. Listen to this. After full desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Oh, James, where, where would you go to point that out? How about King David? Wow. How about us? David has fallen big time here. The seeds of his fall have started in a series of small compromises, laziness, not attending to his work. We need to pause here, people, as disciples of Christ, and just heed that lesson straight out. Pray for yourselves. Pray for each other. Stamp out the small compromises before they take root. It's a fitting illustration of what happens whenever we sin. How often do we mull over our lusts, our desires, fueling the fire of dangerous desire as David did? Just letting our minds wander, chewing it over. How would this play out? How would it make us feel? From there, it's easy to to ignore the effect our evil will have on others if we sin against them. Even those we consider friends who we care about. Our world gets really small just tunnels in on ourselves and we stop seeing people as created in God's image and recognize this the roots of self-pity perhaps you've been working really hard long hours you've sacrificed a lot to serve friends or family you feel underappreciated maybe you've taken more of your fair share of opposition or criticism in in some way 
be aware, be awake to the fact that all those feelings, all those emotions are like grow bags that you put tomato seeds in. You know the yellow ones, you rip them up, you stick the seeds in, the tomato plants come. Or like a greenhouse and you put the seedlings in it and you know that's going to be an environment for them to really flourish. Those feelings of self-pity are just the same. They're like manure. They'll let sin spread quickly. It fertilizes our self-pity, which grows into self-righteousness, which blossoms into a force field of denial. Uh, There's nothing wrong. I deserve this. It's not my fault. And that gives fruit of self-justifying behavior. You see, our internal monologue, our, our radio head will tell us soothingly, it's fine. You're okay. Because nobody really gets you. Nobody appreciates what you're going through. You deserve this. It won't hurt. After all, you've put in so much time and energy. You've looked after so many people. You're okay. It won't kill. Of course, once we've sinned, we also attempt to cover up our tracks like David. Wake up. Wake up. Sin will kill you. Corruption has only one destination. Rebellion against God's will, ignoring his word, ends in one place alone. Hell. And that isn't the party time where you get to do what you want. It is meeting God face to face in his holy perfection with nowhere to go. No cover at all. Being laid bare by the one who knows you, his holy and perfect And you cannot stand and you cannot be in front of him. But there's nowhere to go because you are meeting your maker. And it never had to be that way. Verse 27. But the thing David has done displeased That is a light way of putting it. It's literally was evil in Yahweh's eyes. He sees it all. The cover-up plans are useless. You might, as David thinks, I might have pulled it off. No way, mate. The Lord sees it all. And then we see a sincere confession. What will the Lord do? Will he strike down this chosen king? It's interesting. Last week when we were looking at Tamar, there were two sons who were evil. They disobeyed God. They were breaking the laws, the faithfulness to uh, Tamar. And the Lord took them out. We're told quite clearly. Because of sin, we're not sure what, whether it was specifically to do with that. There's probably a bunch of other stuff, a catalog, and his patience hit fullness. And that was it. They were going to have their judgment. So, does David get that? How will God give him what he deserves, but also maintain his promise, the promise God has given David, to keep a king reigning forever in David's family line over God's people? 
And those six words in chapter 12, verse 1, well, they're the equivalent of paramedics rushing to a car crash scene. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. In those six words, there's hope. Nathan comes armed with God's word to bring David to repentance. He's got one mission. It's clear. This man needs bringing down. And he does it superbly in a word that's a parable. It's a story that draws David in. It's one of the cleverest, in the right sense of that word, ways of bringing someone in. He tells a story, something that would be commonplace to the king because the king was there ruling for justice. So these sort of things happen all the time in his kingdom. He's got to decide. And here's Nathan with this story drawing him in. And what does the indignant David do? He, a bit like Judah as well from last week, Genesis 38, he just shouts out, he's got to die. You know, there's the judgment. It's pretty out of proportion as well. It was a lamb, yes, and that's not very nice at all. But just kill the man. It's this rage again. And he declares that this man had no pity. So not only is he prepared to give the punishment, he can also read his heart. I can see the things going on in people. Oh my. If Admiral Akbar here was from Star Wars come out with those infamous words it's a trap and David's fallen right into it you are that man see if I was Nathan I'd really like really ramp that bit up you are that man what why did you despise the word of the Lord we read by doing what is evil in his eyes you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own David was nowhere near Uriah He didn't lift one blade, but do you see how the Lord sees it? You are guilty of that sin. You might as well picked up the sword and shoved it through his heart yourself. You did it in secret, but I, the Lord, will do this thing, the judgment and calamity that's going to come on David, in broad daylight before all Israel. There are consequences to you living life your way, thinking you are God. And like a heavyweight boxer landing that haymaker square on his opponent's jaw, Nathan has knocked out David. Or more clearly, God has taken David down through his word. He's spiritually on the floor. And why is this rebuke so necessary? Why do we need good people in our lives to correct and rebuke and correct and admonish us when we're blatantly pushing against God, rebelling against him and his word? Why is this so necessary? Again, I go to Paul Tripp, who I just think is really helpful in this stuff. He's written a book on Psalm 51, 52 meditations on Psalm 51, looking at sin and mercy. Uh, It's called Whiter Than Snow, and and I highly recommend it. And in that, Paul, reflecting on um, Psalm 51, which we'll get onto because that is uh, David's cry, his confession writes this, sin lives in a costume. Sin lives in a costume. Why do you need rebuking and correcting? Because sin lives in a costume. Sin must present itself as something, anything other than evil. Impatient yelling wears the mask of zeal for truth. Lust masquerades as, I just love beauty. 
Gossip does its evil by living in the costume of concern and prayer. Craving for power and living, sorry, craving for power and control wears the mask of biblical leadership. We'll never know sin's sleight of hand until we acknowledge the DNA of sin, which is deception. And that means we're all too skilled at looking at our own wrong and seeing good. We're all very good at being intolerant of others, of the very things we tolerate in ourselves. That's why we need correction and rebuke and admonition from people who care about God's truth and care about us. I've said it again, I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you are following Christ as a sincere disciple and you're serious about your life being in his hands, you will want people in your life who will call out your sin. You will want that. You know it's painful You want to run away from that, but you deeply want that because you're following Jesus. His love is more important. Friends and family who, by God's grace, are sight givers, helping you see yourself in your sinful patterns so that you can repent, so that you can say sorry to God, so that you can say sorry to them, that you can confess the sin, that you can turn from it. And with the Holy Spirit's help, you can live in restoration. Instead of shipwrecking your love for God. Alexander White, the the Scottish free church minister of St. George's Edinburgh, who worked there in the mid-1800s onwards, he's put it so well and so right when he says, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David knew that Nathan had a sword. It's a great way of putting it. The sword's there, ready to cut. And that's what we need. It's not David, it's us. We need God's sharp word to change us. We need people who are courageous to speak with humility but truth into our lives. And isn't it interesting that later in life, Solomon, as he's writing his Proverbs by the Spirit's wisdom, in Proverbs 27 verses 5 to 6, guess what he puts in? Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Do you think David sat down with him and goes, here's one, Solomon, that you need to include? Do we want those wounds from a friend? And verse 13, here in uh, chapter uh, 12, is a sign that David has been convicted of his sin. I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. The light of truth is flooded in. He can see his evil for what he's done to Bathsheba, to Uriah, to his infant child, um, to the, in the context of his relationship with the Lord God. It's all on the vertical. This sin is an assault on God's glory. It's firstly an offense against the Lord. But that does not deny, that doesn't deny the horizontal. It's not like David's going, right, those don't matter. It's just about the Lord. No, he goes on the vertical because that is where the ugliness and the depth of what he's done to these people is seen in all its nastiness. Because it is firstly a sin against God, which means what he's done here in the rape and murder is more vile, not less. 
it's not minimizing what he did to Bathsheba or to Uriah by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. From God's perspective, sin is always personal. That's why the solution to sin costs God so much as we've been singing to start our hearts and minds focusing on him at the start of our service. The forgiveness for David's sin, for every person in his genealogy, for our sin, it was personal. It cost God the Father, his perfect innocent son, bearing our sin on himself on the cross, in our place, willingly, a ransom for many, for all who come to him, who trust him. Jesus Christ is that lamb. He's a lamb given by a willing father. He's a lamb who willingly himself goes and gives up his power to save us, taking away sin. And the narrative in verses 15 to 17, honestly, it feels too brief, doesn't it? In chapter 12, it's a bit like sort of bum, 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 because that's how a historical narrative goes. It doesn't give you the emotion, the details and stuff like this. It's almost too functional. Has David really meant this? Has he pleaded? Has he, he's fasted? He's laid in sackcloth? But make no mistake, this is a man broken by his sin. Here is a sincere confession. Here is a destitute king who knows his Lord's hand lays heavy on him. Why? How do we know this? Because he records it. He prays and writes his prayer down in Psalm 51. He lays his soul bare for countless millions to hear and read over three millennia, a sinful king seeking forgiveness, finding it from the Lord. Psalm 51 is his wrestling, is his plea, is him on the floor broken. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. That's how it starts. The heading on the psalm tells us he wrote it after Nathan had given him this message. And David doesn't come to God as his own defense lawyer. He has one appeal. His appeal is this. Lord, your mercy. Your mercy. We've got no other defenses, no other standing, no other hope. We appeal to God on one thing, the guarantees of his acceptance, of acceptance with him, because of what God has done, because of what Jesus does for us. God looks on you, he looks on me with mercy, and that's our only appeal. And if you have ever felt far from God, if right now you're dealing with a sin that is just a huge blockage between you and the Lord, it's affecting your horizontal relationships, I beg you, use Psalm 51. It's there for you to turn into prayer. Use the words. Make them your own. Cry out to God. Don't settle for the sin. Don't settle for being in the pit. Don't settle for the self-delusion that you are okay. Don't settle for destruction. Go to the Lord. Beg to him, not because you're going to him, not because you've done good things in the past. That won't stand. Go to him because of his mercy. Here's the God who loves to redeem sinners. Why stand far off? In 
Embrace the rescue that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Because that leads us to a new hope. And that's where David, Bathsheba, and the family, Solomon, with Nathan, there's years that have passed. We land in this new hope. And this is just finally uh, and, and shorter, this third point, a new hope. You see, from this place of confession and this deep grief of the consequences of David's sin, the death of his young son, we do see light. God sent Nathan to David to convict him. But here's a really interesting thing. God sends Bathsheba to David to restore him, to teach him grace. I can't begin to imagine what Bathsheba must have gone through emotionally, physically, spiritually from that night when she was summoned to David's room through to the bereavement of her husband and then her infant son. Surely David would be the last person on earth she would want to be around. Like, how do you look at that man? How do you do it? How did she do it? The only way I can make sense of their union is that David was truly repentant and Bathsheba truly forgave him. The grace of God is at work in her. How courageous. You see, David prays in Psalm 51 verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David is saying, bring me out of this. I will show people how sinful I am so that they see how great and merciful you are. And in Bathsheba, that request is answered. She has compassion on David. She doesn't plot to kill him. Instead, together they have a son, one whom the Lord loves, we're told in chapter 12, verse 24, Solomon. His name means peace, king of peace. She was obviously a wise woman whom Solomon listens to in his life as well because he says in Proverbs 1, do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. She was grace to Solomon. She impacted his life. She taught him the righteous way with David. Bathsheba's courage and love is seen in that protective action as well that we read in 1, in one Kings, where Adonijah, the, the fourth son of David, is having a power grab. He's going to take the kingdom. And what does Bathsheba do? David is in old age. He's impotent. He's, he's losing his power. His kingdom really has gone downhill since this incident back in 2 Samuel 11. And what does Bathsheba do? She, she leads she holds him to account on the promise of God. You've got to protect your son Solomon, who you promised to the throne, and you've got to protect me. She's full of courage here. She steps up. She calls David to fulfill the promise that God has given him. So what does that mean for us? A new hope for sinners. It means that we... We'll be ready. Surely we should be eager to share God's word with people. We'll want to do that. It could be as simple as reading just a few pages of the word one-to-one, -one, John's gospel, over coffee with a friend. You might only do it once. They might be not interested in carrying on. Many are. But 
it could be something like that. It could be sending a thoughtful card that just has a, a, a Bible verse that's, you know, important to you that you just want to share with a friend and encourage them. And to do that with a non-Christian friend. It could be that you just invite people together, like at the craft evening, to use that as an opportunity just to meet a few other friends and just chat. Who knows where that goes? What seeds will be sown? It'll mean you'll be prayerfully ready to forgive others when they hurt you. Surely that. I mean, Bathsheba, she's, she cuts me down. Like, how do you forgive someone like that? You can only do it by knowing God's mercy. It means prayerfully asking Jesus to bless and save friends and family who don't yet know him. Surely this is all the outworking of knowing our sins are forgiven and that we have a new hope because of King Jesus. It will mean that you're ready, you're willing, you're waiting to share that gratitude for the grace of Jesus that he has given you with someone who needs it just as much as you. Ready to share the grace that you so desperately need with someone who needs it just as much as you. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we sang earlier, you see the depths of our hearts and love us the same because Jesus Christ's sacrifice covers our sin. His righteousness, his righteousness, his righteous life is ours. We, Lord, stand here as your sons and daughters, your treasure. For those this morning who are still wrestling in their sin, who do not know your love, Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come with your light, your power, and bring holy conviction so that people would not leave here this morning still hardened in their sin without forgiveness. And Father, would you work in our hearts such that we would live out the holy calling you've given us to be people who dispense, who share, who sow your grace far and wide, like David, prepared to help sinners return to you by sharing our story, by sharing your good news. Father, do that work in us. Amen.